Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Somali politics are heating up ahead of the next election cycle. Why is the president picking fights with member states and regional neighbors? And there's been an uproar over the Academy's decision to ban Nigerian film Lionheart. Will Nigerians unite over this cinematic slight? Plus, we welcome back Ugandan pop star and presidential candidate Bobby Wine on our one-year anniversary episode. How do you run for your country's top job when the playing field is tilted against you? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. Well, we are delighted to have the band back together today. It is our 27th episode, the beginning of season two, and we are joined by Lauren Blanchard, who is an Africa specialist at the Congressional Research Service, Damola Dumasoma, who is a writer at okafrica.com. And I don't think my guest needs any explanation, but his honorable Robert Chagulani, also known as Bobby Wine. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This is really exciting. This is the first time we've ever had returning guests on the show. And there's this real reason for it. This is our anniversary show. We've been doing this now for a full year. So let's talk about Somalia first. Somali President Mohamed Abdullahi Mohamed Fermajo is picking fights with federal member states and is facing an emerging coalition of former presidents. Last Saturday, the Somali government said it would not recognize the result of the election in Jubaland, saying the candidate's election process violated the national constitution. What is happening in Somali domestic politics? Fermajo came to power in February 2017. And he seems to be finding himself in disputes all across the board with the regional presidents, his opposition, both former President Sheikh Sharif and former President Hassan Sheikh. So is this politics as usual or something else? First, uh, happy anniversary, Judd. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Somali politics are never dull. So you've got tensions on a number of levels. Some of them aren't new. Some of them are really sort of um, expanding. So tensions between the center and the periphery. This is sort of a common theme in this part of the world and um, certainly in Somalia. Tensions between Mogadishu and the central government in Mogadishu and the regions are sort of a longstanding theme. But we've really seen the tensions escalate in the last year. Uh, And those tensions are sort of playing out around these elections that that the federal member states have been having. So the federal member state leadership have been concerned about alleged interference by the central government uh, in their election processes. This started back in December with the elections in Southwest regional state and then moved to the elections in both Jubaland and then later Puntland. And there's a lot of money that's been flowing around in these elections. The UN uh, monitoring group that monitors the Somalia sanctions just came out with a new report that talked about massive levels of reported bribery in these elections. For the Southwest elections, I think it was, they were talking about members of the regional parliament being offered up to twenty to $30,000 for their vote. So the Southwest elections were really interesting, and they involved uh, a former al-Shabaab commander who was trying to run for president of the region. He was disqualified by the federal government, and there were protests uh, in response, and a number of protesters were killed by uh, federal security forces. 
that touched off a fight with uh, the UN special envoy who was ultimately ejected from the country. It was like PNG'd. Yeah, basically, basically. The elections went on. The Ethiopian military got involved in arresting, ultimately, Mukhtar Robo, former al-Shabaab commander. And it was a pretty ugly scene. So then you move on this summer to the elections in Jubaland, where the incumbent was facing a number of challenges, uh, including from the federal government. We had Somalia's neighbors, Ethiopia and Kenya, seeming to be on opposing sides of this election. Um, there was a standoff at the airport in Kismayo, the regional capital, between Ethiopian and Kenyan forces. I mean, these are forces that are both involved in AMISOM, the regional stabilization mission. All of these things, all of these tensions are impacting the security situation. Uh, during that election period, there was a uh, violent attack in Kismayo. I think it was the, the biggest of its kind, terrorist attack by al-Shabaab. And these raise a lot of questions as Somalia heads towards what are supposed to be elections coming maybe at the end of next year. So we've got Fermaja picking fights with a bunch of regional presidents. We've got the neighborhood, Kenya and Ethiopia, playing in the mix here as well, whether it's in Southwest State or in Jubaland. And then there's the next part of the circle, right? The, the outer layer, which is we have the Gulf states messing around as well. So UAE and Turkey and Qatar and Saudi have all picked sides. Essentially what's happened is Fermaggio didn't want to pick sides, so the UAE did it for him. And they decided to pull out some of their military assistance, and they've now been working with the federal member states against Fermaggio. The question really for us is, is this the right time for the international community to get involved? When I worked at the White House in 2012, the Brits put on the London Conference on Somalia. I was really impressed with it, actually. I mean, everyone who needed to be there was there. It wasn't a, a West project. It wasn't a UK project. Everyone was there. The region was there. Key Somali actors, the Gulf. And I think it really helped create a new consensus around the way forward. What's the right intervention to kind of put things not back in a box, but at least so we're moving towards these elections at the end of next year, early 21, where everyone is sort of playing a fair game? It's been really interesting to watch the the tensions between the Gulf countries, primarily between the UAE and Saudi Arabia and Qatar play out on the other side of the Red Sea in the, in the Horn. I keep saying that the coastline of the Horn is probably the hottest real estate in town. Uh, everybody wants to build a base there or build a port there, um, have access and have deals with the governments along the, uh, the coastline. And unfortunately for a country like Somalia, Sudan also found itself sort of in this in this mix. You can't be neutral because neutrality is seen by one side as choosing the other side. So, you know, Mogadishu thought that it could stay neutral. Qatar is an important investor, an important donor. Turkey plays a very, very important role uh, in Somalia. And, uh, you know, Mogadishu didn't want to choose sides. The Emirates tried to to sort of force that situation. And as a result, you have Mogadishu sort of seeming to be um, taking the side of Qatar, the Emirates increasing, seeming to increase their support for the federal member states, and also trying to make a deal with breakaway region of Somaliland uh, for port access and potentially a military base. And the Saudis have also talked to the Somalilanders about a base. Um, and all of these things just add to an already tense situation where you have an ongoing insurgency by al-Shabaab. 
a lot of the international donors are lining up to support Somalia's bid for debt relief right now. But these political tensions threaten to derail all of this and have to be addressed. And and what's the most constructive way to go about it? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that we need to have that kind of high-level engagement with all the players in the room. Unless we're all having this conversation together, I think that individual countries are going to pursue their own interests. And there's just too many people doing things that are counter to, I think, a, a prosperous and peaceful Somalia. I wanted to end with some comments from Rashid Abdi, who's announced with Crisis Group, and I, I really like what he says usually. And so he had this tweet last month on his recommendations on the political stalemate. He said that we need to resurrect the National Leadership Forum, which is a good vehicle to de-escalate tension and address issues. He said that we should support talks between Formaggio and the regional presidents. He specifically mentioned Jubilant President Madobe and Putin President Deni to restart the constitutional review process and forge a consensus on the electoral roadmap. So I think those are, those are wide words from Rashid. Okay, let's talk about the Academy Awards because this story is getting a lot of attention. The Academy decided to disqualify a film called Lionheart. It's a Nigerian film by Genevieve Nigi. The Lionheart will have to soldier on until I get back on my feet. I now name my replacement Chief Godswill. The bottom door. His reasons have nothing to do with you being a woman. Your uncle is just here to supervise. I'm going to change a lot of things in this establishment. They said the reason why that they were going to disqualify it is because the main language was predominantly English. Damoa, you wrote about this on OKAfrica.com. Why is this a big deal? Was the Academy right? I would not say that the Academy was right. No, um, this was a big deal because this was for this was Nigeria's first entry. Um, into the Oscars, the first Nigerian film submitted into the Oscars, and it feels as if it wasn't given a fair chance. And the decision to disqualify it seems sort of rooted in ignorance because English is actually the official language of Nigeria. What else are they supposed to do the film in? Exactly. So it's like, are you you punishing a country for being colonized, basically, because (laughs) this is the language that was left over after colonization. And because of this, Several Nigerians actually only speak English and some don't even speak indigenous languages. So it's like, where do you, you know, draw the line? And all because it's in English doesn't mean it's not Nigerian. And I feel like the Academy's decision, um, it just highlights their ignorance and like their lack of cultural awareness. Because you should have someone on your team that can say, oh, well, thematically, this film is actually very Nigerian. And all because Africans aren't jumping up and down with spears (laughs) doesn't mean it's not a Nigerian film. There's nuance. There's multiple ways to tell authentically Nigerian stories. They responded saying that the rules were clearly stated and clearly communicated to all the overseas participants, which, okay, that's fair. Maybe Nigeria didn't follow the rules, but the problem is the rule itself. Yeah, well, they changed the title, so it's no longer called the uh, foreign film category. It's international film. And I set you up because I don't think the Academy was right. I think this was a huge, a huge mistake. But I've been encouraged by the outcry. And I wanted to quote Anna DuVernay, who's an award-winning director, and she called out the Academy on Twitter, and she said, you disqualified Nigeria's first-ever submission for Best International Feature because it's in English. 
but English is the official language of Nigeria. Are you barring this country from ever competing for an Oscar in its official language? Which is essentially what you said, but even better was what Genevieve said. So why don't you tell us a little about her response? Well, Genevieve said that there are 500 plus languages spoken in Nigeria, and English is one of the ways that the message in the movie is unified, and it's made accessible for all types of Nigerians. And basically, you shouldn't punish (laughs) Nigerians for making a movie in a language that's accessible to a wide range of Nigerians. And I think she's absolutely right in saying that. I think When we talk about national identity, it actually makes the most sense to make a Nigerian film in English because there are so many tribes that if you make a film in Yoruba, it's a Yoruba film. If you make a film in Igbo, it's an Igbo film. If you make a film in English as Lionheart is was filmed in English, it becomes a more Nigerian film because it's more far-reaching. It can reach a broader amount of Nigerians. So I agree with her in saying that. And I feel like the Academy just, they don't understand the nuance. (laughs) Yeah. She said something that um, I kind of want to dig into. She said that, as ever, this film, and many like it, are proudly Nigerian. Is this an elite preoccupation or can, you know, Lionheart and a, you know, Hollywood inside baseball decision be another unifying moment in Nigeria? It's the best way to get people together is to insult a collective, a collective group of people. Absolutely. I mean, it's sort of ironic that they're getting unified over the use of English. Yeah, this is ultimately not resolved. This is going to come up because if you are doing a film from Uganda, it's going to be in English. From Kenya, it's going to be in English. So I think the Academy is really going to have to rethink what it's doing. And I'm going to uh, quote Chino Achebe because he has this great line that he says that English in Nigeria reflects the palm oil which words are eaten. Right. So it doesn't matter if it's a language that has its origins in Great Britain. It has become Nigerian just by virtue of being part of the culture. My last thoughts on this is that Nollywood and the Nigerian film industry and maybe Africans film industry is unstoppable. And it is not only the second largest film industry by volume, but this film industry is becoming a global phenomenon Netflix is picking up Nollywood films. I mean, Lionheart was a Netflix film. And according to PricewaterhouseCooper, the Nigerian film industry is forecast to increase from $3.6 billion in 2016 to $6.4 billion in 2021. So the Academy's UK, US-centric approach, I think, is ultimately going to have to be revisited. Yeah, I agree. And lastly, I want to add that I think... When these issues come up of like, why do Nigerians even need Oscars? Like start your own award show. There are plenty. There are award shows awarding African film in the dozens. So I think it's important that we realize that it's fair for Nigeria, for African films to want to be acknowledged on these sort of like prestige award platforms. And we don't need to conflate this with people seeking out Western approval. (laughs) They just want a fair shot at the same approval that other films already get. Yeah, it's well said. Bobby, last time we talked a year ago, you had returned, you had come to the United States because you had been detained by the Ugandan authorities and beaten and you were getting medical detention. And we talked, the four of us, about 
um, your life story and why you entered politics. But a lot has happened in one year. In particular, you announced that you are running for president. In less than two years, Ugandans will head to the polls in an election that many say will decide the country's political future for years to come. Opposition parties in Uganda are preparing for 2021, already casting this as a generational battle. Uganda's longtime president, Yoweri Museveni, will be facing many challenges, including one who was only four years old when Museveni took power 33 years ago. Musician and member of parliament Robert Chagulanyi, also known by his stage name Bobby Wine. I was hoping you could catch us up. When we talked last time, you were recovering. You were committed to a new future in Uganda, but you hadn't made the leap to run for president. What has changed? Well, a lot has changed, but uh, I would love in very brief words to remind us of what has been happening, what continu- continues to be happening. As a musician, I'd, I'd been talking about the injustices and the government excesses and what is being done wrong and what we could do right. And that explains why I went to Parliament to address these issues, to raise them on a more formal platform. Now, having been attacked by the president, the military and brutalized Still, I did not break my resolve because I know that the problem with Uganda is the governance which is centralized in one man's hand, President Museveni. My team and I decided to run against him and change that forever, uh, once and for all, in a vote. And that explains why we are running uh, on behalf of the people of Uganda to change the status quo and to put President Museveni out of governance. You have got an uphill battle. There's been a number of opposition leaders before who have tried to run and defeat President Museveni. And so I thought Demola and Lauren and I could ask a couple questions to kind of understand how you think and you are planning to outmaneuver President Museveni and and win this election uh, in 2021. Demola, can I turn to you first? Yes, definitely. So um, I think once you announced your presidency, everyone sort of rallied behind you because this is an exciting movement. But I think it's important to discuss the how. So I'm wondering if you can tell us more about your strategy um, and do you feel that you have the network and the ground game necessary to actually win the election? Yeah, sure. Thank you very much. Initially, we had an effort of bringing, uh, first of all, or uh, sensitizing the people of Uganda to understand the problem, but most importantly, to understand how to go about the problem. We agreed, all of us unanimously, that we need unity. Unity from different political parties, unity from people from different walks of life, and unity among the people of Uganda, those that are living in the country and those that live in the diaspora. We managed to achieve all that. So our strategy uh, is one to massively sensitize our people, get them ready for a vote, the same people that have been kept apathetic, create and uh, promote the belief and confidence in democracy. Then all of a sudden we'll go into the election in a massive way. That is what we're preparing to do. That is what we hope to achieve, to get all the people of Uganda stand and speak with one voice through their vote. And how um, to move from there is to um, sensitize the people on how to protect their vote, on how to get involved uh, in not only casting the vote, but to take part in the counting of the vote until the final and realist result, realistic result is announced. Can I ask just a follow-up to Demo's question? Does people power need to be registered as a party? Do you, how do you think about the FDC, the DP, the other parties? Do you, are you looking for formal coalitions with them or just a decision to support each other? Yeah. Is it too early? 
Yeah, even if Uganda is seen as is on paper a multi-party democracy, in reality it's not a multi-party democracy but a military dictatorship because no single political party is allowed to organize. Just a few days ago, the main opposition, the leader, former presidential candidate of the main opposition party, the FDC, was brutalized by the police. He almost lost his life. And that's exactly what has been going on. No single party is allowed to organize. So we resolved as the People Power Movement to be the uniting force. So we are not a political party, but you are a uniting platform for all political parties and all change-seeking forces. And we continue to bring them together. Already we are united, but again we are continuing to build synergies with the FTCs and other change-seeking individuals so that we go into this as a united front, as the people of Uganda, not just as political entities. Bobby, you you mentioned uh, the use of violence by security forces, and and that's been pretty well documented. You, of course, were on the receiving end of it back in 2018. How do you plan to deal with that as the elections are approaching? You mentioned the use of a water cannon against Pasiche last week when when you were detained and uh, abused and your colleagues. uh, That was in the context of a political campaign. So how are you thinking about approaching this and in terms of keeping your supporters safe as well? First and foremost, we have a two-pronged approach. We have a local approach and an international approach. Locally, we try to guide our people not to fall in the trap or to fall in the advantaged areas of the regime because the regime is equipped to use and unleash violence at any time. So we try to use the conventional ways. Uh, We are glad that the biggest part of our population are young people. And yes, we use informal ways like music, skits to communicate. And we also use the internet. So we don't present ourselves where they can brutalize us, but we still know that they can brutalize and continue to brutalize people anyway. And that explains why we are constantly reaching out on the to the development partners like the United States, the European Union, to help us hold our uh, government um, accountable, well knowing that uh, uh, especially the United States is a very big sponsor of our military and uh, we know that the United States is a democracy, is governed on the rule of law. So have been in the past calling upon them to invoke their laws like the Magnitsky, which I am thankful and indeed deliver thanks on behalf of the people of Uganda because recently the former Inspector General of Police, Kali Kaihura, has actually been indicted and uh, he has been uh, denied visas, uh, visa to the United States and not only him but other human rights abusers. That in a way has sent a very strong message to the abusers of human rights, those that torture people and brutalize them and it has in a way not only controlled or checked them but it has empowered the people of Uganda to put their feet down and stand for their rights well knowing that those people that take part in their torture and brutalization will actually be sanctioned. Press reports have suggested that the government has been monitoring uh, your camp, your your communications uh, through WhatsApp and, and yeah. social media. I'm I'm assuming that you guys are sort of constantly trying to figure out how to adapt to uh, to deal with that. That's very true. Um, so we are supposed to be disheartened with it. But again, we also are glad to know that we have an old man and a young man tussling out 
in a young generation style. In this generation where we have different apps, different modes of communication, all we have to do is try to go around it. We know that the regime has invested so much in, you know, tapping and uh, infiltrating the communication. But again, we just keep to, uh, we just have to keep evolving, keep inventing new forms of communications that are able to go around the, all the curtailment. You know, I follow Uganda closely here in Washington, and I have to tell you, Bobby, I can't figure out what is your status, right? You still sometimes vote in parliament. You travel sometimes, no concerts. It just seems like the, uh, the government's restrictions around your movement and what you can do change day to day. How do you navigate really uh, sort of an inconsistent approach to your status? You're still under treason charges as well, right? How do you manage to run a campaign with so much uncertainty that hangs over you? Well, on top of the treason charge, I was recently charged with annoying the president. So <laughs> charges in Uganda just keep coming. They don't have to be, you know, in our law books because it is not rule of law. I mean, our, our curtailment does not necessarily have to be out of breaking any law. It has to just be as per the interest. This and more is supposed to be a challenge. But for us, it is a, a window of opportunity mm. because we are dealing with a failing state that has no control and has no structured operation whatsoever. The more they target me is the more my other colleagues are able to maneuver unchecked. And uh, we also know, most importantly, that uh, much as the leadership of the regime is bent on curtailing and stopping us, even people working within the regime actually are hungry for change. So it is those uh, security officers, it is those police officers, those military officers that are within the regime that actually many times help us go about it. That explains how I'm supposed to pass by the, na by the national airport without being uh, caught. It is uh, until I'm already airborne or already out of the country that the regime knows that I'm actually out of the country. Mm. So it is a cat and mouse game, really, with us and the regime. I could be able to move out of my house if I don't announce, but if I tweet that I'm going to attend a church function or I'm going to attend a wedding, I will find that church surrounded or that wedding surrounded by the military. I have one more question, but Damola, do you have another question for, for Bobby? I also want to talk about fear and do you have it? Because Museveni, will, as you said, is willing to unleash violence at any turn. And you present one of like the biggest oppositions to his leadership that he's seen in years. So there's a real threat out there to you. So I want to know on a personal level, how do you deal with fear? Is it something that registers in your mind? I would be dishonest if I say I don't have fear or if I said fear does not register. I mean, people always get killed. My driver was shot dead and the target was me. And not only that, recently my fellow musician called Ziggy Wine was abducted. He disappeared only to show up after his eye has been plucked out. And indeed, he also died. Recently, one of our um, lady leaders was uh, abducted and uh, horrible things happened to her. So much happened to the people and I believe that the whole intention is create, to create so much fear. So there is fear out there. But being a leader, I have to, cry, to fight that fear by first of all pretending that I'm not scared because that alone gives people confidence. And 
somehow I've realized that by pretending to be brave, sometimes one ends up being actually brave because that's the only way to go about it. So that's basically how we keep going. But again, another thing is that I'm glad that I have the ability to address uh, the international community, have the ability to be heard, have the ability to attract not only the national but the international attention on me on behalf of the people. And that explains why every opportunity I get, I try as much as possible to highlight the plight of the people back home, well knowing that uh, the dictatorship back home is only scared of one thing, international attention. So that's what we capitalize so much on. That's a great transition to the the last question I wanted to ask you, Bobby. So you mentioned uh, the key role of the international community. You mentioned a Global Menisky Act, which can use to target corrupt officials, the recent sanctions on the former police commissioner. But there probably is a risk as well as painting you as the man of the West. And so how can you help our listeners understand the balance that you're in? What is the role that the international can do to be helpful, to level the playing field, which is what I think everyone wants, is so that uh, candidates can compete fairly and without harm, but doing it in a way that doesn't uh, give your opponents uh, the opportunity to, to cast you as a man for the international community and not for Ugandans. Is there a balance? Is there a risk? Or is that not an issue? In my opinion, it is not an issue because... Uh, First and foremost, President Museveni has been president for 34 years. When President Museveni was my age, he was globetrotting all over the world to make his case against the, what he called the dictatorship back then in Uganda. What I'm saying is exactly what he said. He is quoted to have said that the problem of Africa and Uganda in particular are the leaders that overstand power. Sadly, 34 years later, he does not want anybody to remind him of what he said back then. So that is not our issue because the people of Uganda understand. The people of Uganda know that it's only when we highlight their plight to the international community that the regime in Uganda will not be oppressing them in the dark. So that does not worry us in any way. In any case, we know that as Uganda, we are part of the global community. We are signatory to very many agreements and uh, We promise to adhere to the values, especially the rule of law, democracy, and human rights, which we share internationally. We continue to request the international community to hold the leadership uh, of Uganda accountable and make respect for human rights, democracy, and leveling the playing field as preconditions for cooperation. If we achieve that, if we achieve a fairly leveled playing field, we know that that would be the master stroke for the people of Uganda to have their voice reign supreme. Thank you so much, Bobby Wine, for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks.